All right, welcome everybody to the Pill Pod. This week's intro comes to you courtesy of TF Prodigy 2. Thank you, TF Prodigy 2. I kind of wondered what his name meant, TF Prodigy. I, like Team hmm. Fortress is the only thing I can think of. He was very good at Team Fortress as a child. Team Fortress 2, that would explain the two. Fully leaning into his identity. Anyway, he didn't like my intro last time, which is a bit meandering. So I crowdsourced it and he just gave me an intro to read. So we're going to read this. <laughs> Welcome to the Pill Pod, your weekly philosophy and critical theory podcast. You can find our regularly scheduled bonus episodes and content on our Patreon. <laughs> That's right. Also, TF Prodigy 2, you forgot to mention we release every Friday and we don't call them bonus episodes. We call them exclusive episodes. So other than mm. that, thank you very much for the help. But he is right because he's if he's a longtime listener, he knows that there was a time when you would just call them bonus interviews if we did some interviews. So, Well, the interviews I do consider bonus because they are bonuses in addition to our regularly scheduled pill pods. So there's different tiers. There's, so there's, there's exclusive and then there's also bonus. There's exclusive pill pods. And what about exclusive bonus? Well, we have that too. That's a bonus interview only okay. on the Patreon. So maybe what if it's a Patreon-only interview? If it's a Patreon-only bonus interview, then that would be exclusive bonus content, right? Exactly. Okay, got it. Quit rocking the boat. We are joined today by our number one guest at long last, Litvik. He's back. The long-awaited return, <laughs> Hi, guys. The other, the other Victor, as I like to think of him. Yeah, no, it's nice. It's very strange to have a, to be confronted with other Victors. Um, it's actually when when I met Pills. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to the audience, but uh, the first time I met Pills, he told me, like to my shock, it's never happened. He's like, "Oh, I have three other friends named Victor." Victor, you like, are what? still you are still in my phone as Victor Four. Whereas am I really? Litvik is in my phone as Victor. Yeah, that's so there were funny. Four Victors originally. Now it's a little more manageable. We're just down. It's to just two, right? Like, like, do you talk to the other two Victors? Well, one accused me of being Illuminati, so he cut me off, and the other is at the bottom of a K hole, as far mm -hmm. as I know. So, so it's just the two Victors remaining. I remember. I remember when you told me as I hung out with uh, with these guys more. Eventually, I remember uh, Pills telling me, "Oh, like you've you've moved up in the ranks. I now consider you Victor 3. And it's like, oh, now you're making up me in the sound ranks. like an asshole. Anyway, <laughs> he's like, you're Victor. <laughs> this is Litvik, which I'm is still Victor uh, too, though. Not the name of an Eastern European DJ, as it might sound, but uh, <laughs> shocker. In this case, he actually is an Eastern European DJ. Yeah, I've I've dabbled. Yeah, yeah. Have you? Damn. Not not. He's never yeah. DJ. Okay. No, I'm I'm an English PhD student. Yeah. So my main research is actually on globalization in the Renaissance, but I also have some background on American literature, which is what we'll be talking about today. So PhD candidate, U of T down the road. And uh, usually we start out with some news stories, but n literally nothing happened in Canada Nothing's or this changed. country this week. So we're just going <laughs> to not a damn thing. Not a yeah. Damn thing. You telling me boring did, I did, uh, in all seriousness though i did i did feel like uh chantelle bear that, that she's the cbc like one of the political commentators she had she did say like you know and i thought her take was the best in an election that no one wanted nobody got what they wanted oh yeah I mean, like no no party got any of like accomplished any of the goals they had 
and no one wanted the election and it's like no one got like like every disappointment all around no one gets anything and there's something kind of satisfying about seeing that happen yeah to our listeners uh, who know we're canadian uh but aren't from canada and demand that we give them a thorough breakdown we're not going to give them a thorough breakdown this is the thorough breakdown everything is exactly the same the party that i wanted to win gained one seat and the party that i dislike lost two there you go there's your thorough breakdown Congratulations. And if you'd like a more thorough breakdown, I would prefer not to. <laughs> oh, Hey-o. the first oh, one. The first, yeah. This is the Shots first fired. one. Let's, let's not overuse it. First of many. Um, sure. So specific or today we're talking about literature, which is why Litvik is here. Not his only area of expertise, but it's in the name. So you know that he's an authority on it. Uh, we're talking about Herman Melville and specifically the short story of Bartleby, which I highly recommend. It was really fucking funny. And it's only my edition was like, what, 35 pages. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. A, it was a good one. I really I also really enjoyed it. The Scrivener. I had to look up. I learned what a Scrivener was, which is uh, interesting. I get like it's one of those things that today you're like, well, we just have like typewriters and computers. But. Basically, they were just like people who copied legal documents, right? So like when someone would write them and like you need to distribute copies of the legal documents, they just worked in law offices and were just copying shit all day, right? A, a so hum- that's what it was, right? A human photocopier. Yeah, you exactly. call them a copyist yeah. if it's yeah. more broad. I guess Scrivener is specific to uh, legal documents. Well, Zizek famously has the shirt and he came up or this story came up in our episode on Byung-Chul Han, which was PillPod 27, I checked. But it's also referenced by Deleuze, Agamben, Hart and Negri, Zizek, of course. So we got a few philosophical references that kind of do whatever they want to this story. They bugger it. Um, am I missing anybody? I think that's all. Camus. Camus was, um, I don't know if he referenced the story directly, but it was deeply inspired, uh, apparently, by Melville and this kind of absurdist slash proto-existentialist uh, approach to the world. And you can also see it in his style, especially his short stories like The Guest. Uh, I really had like strong guest vibes uh, throughout this. And it's pretty fucking funny, even though it was written in what, 1850s or 60s? Yeah. Oh, 18, 100%. Yeah. So Bartleby is the, not the main character. The, it's the, the story is told from the perspective of Bartleby's boss. So oh, we have the shit. class antagonism reading into there. Um, he never speaks unless spoken to. Pretty much his only documented words are, I prefer not to, even though the narrator does account for him saying certain other words. The narrator is his boss, but is also concerned about him out of Christian charity. Um, he doesn't eat anything. He sits in this legal office and copies stuff out all he day eats long. ginger nut cakes. Ginger nut cakes, whatever those are. <laughs> <laughs> no family or friends to speak of. So he's like a, a humanity-free human. Yeah. I, I did want to say, I, I did love that fucking sequence because I like the story a lot. I thought it was hilarious. And when his boss just gets uptight, he's like, well, if you're not going to leave my fucking office and let me do my job, then I'm just going to fucking let you have the office and move somewhere entirely new. And that'll fucking show you, you asshole. It's genuinely a fun story, right? Like, don't think like, if you think of Melville, you'll probably think, oh, 200 pages on how to, hunt and kill and process a whale like this is legitimately (laughs) really funny not quite a laugh a minute but absurdist uh, and it's quick i really really yeah it's funny the dry matter of fact way that he describes these extremely absurd characters creates this really comic effect that i quite enjoy 
Yeah. So before we turn to the various interpretations of the story, um, I thought we'd get to something that none of us know well, except our guests here, at least I think, unless you guys are secretly uh, Melville scholars. But we got Litvik here who can speak to the context and to Melville as a dude, um, who I've always seen as kind of a psychologist author, and which is particularly important given his context in the early moments of uh, American capitalism kind of zeitgeisting its way into the world. And this is someone who's writing at kind of the time when that's appearing. And as a psychologist, I don't know. Why don't I just kick it to you, Victor? Is that a, is that a good way to portray that? And is there anything else you'd say and why? And what's the significance of Melville in literature? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, we can consider him a psychologist now. Many of his relatives actually thought that he was a little bit crazy. Like they kept trying to get him like normal government jobs and everything. <laughs> and he kept just wanting to like write crazy existentialist stories about whales and scriveners. But um, yeah, so he he lived in the 19th century. He was actually born in, in New York City where the story takes place, Bartleby. And he had quite the resume. So before becoming a writer, Melville was also um, he worked at a bank. He worked as a whaler. He allegedly lived among cannibals for a couple of months in, in the Pacific. He was actually known as the man who lived among the cannibals to his peers. So that tells you something <laughs> about his reputation at the time. And, on um, Wall Street and on what? Some island or something? Yeah. Polynesia. So from, from Wall Street to the cannibals, the full range of um, yeah. the 19th century experience. Yeah. And... Um, he it's it's so it's it's worth noting he had already published his epic Moby Dick about two years before he wrote Bartleby the Scrivener. And around that time, his reputation wasn't really great. He wasn't critically regarded like Melville's own reputation as a writer and Moby Dick's reputation as like the great American novel really only picked up steam in the 20th century, because in some ways his writing and his outlook was so out of sync with his own time. It really anticipated elements of modernism and postmodernism much more than it did sort of his contemporary literary scene. So Moby Dick, for example, is a very unconventional kind of novel. It's a mix of genres. It, it ostensibly starts off as like a conventional whaling voyage, but then it becomes like this metaphysical epic quest between, of course, Captain Ahab and the white whale. So this really threw off readers and writers at, or reviewers at the time. But it became much more impressive within a 20th century context. So that's sometimes the context to which Bartleby is also sort of uh, looked at in terms of, you know, Melville's own frustrations as a struggling writer, like this misunderstood artist. And the fact that he wrote Bartleby like just two years after Moby Dick sometimes plays into this sort of autobiographical reading of Melville the man and Bartleby the scrivener. But um, that's just sort of a brief overview of melville and kind of how he stood in relation to his own peers at least in the literary scene and did he work on wall street because he always there's he never gives the address of the place at least in the version that i have the address is blanked out so i wondered if there was like some that, personal yeah, that's reference like a, there that that's a common literary convention of like yeah. the 19th century like you see it even in russian novels certain like formal businesses and addresses are, are not mentioned but yeah i don't think he's actually protecting his own like former employers or anything so we have the 19th century version of any relation to actual people is entirely coincidental. Don't sue us. Cool. But uh, it is based on personal experience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to he add was one a, thing. He was a New Yorker. Yeah. I just want to add one thing because it's kind of crucial to my own reading. Uh, this is kind of a Ciceronian piece. 
But apparently his family started off very, very wealthy. Uh, one of the wealthiest families in New York. Uh, but the dad had serious debts. And when he died, it turned out that there was nothing to the family name. Uh, and so he kind of just made his way initially living on the charity of his various relatives before they eventually kicked him out and said, you got to go make a living of your own. Uh, and that's why he ended up doing all these different odd jobs. Uh, and I really like that, actually, because he really almost was a character in a 19th century novel. I mean, it kind of reminded me a bit of David Copperfield, just learning a little bit about his own biography, right? It's like, oh, so wealthy family falls apart, goes, lives amongst the cannibals, writes type B, becomes a success. Then all this random shit happens in artistic stuff. I'm like, you couldn't you could write this stuff, but you'd have to be pretty talented uh, to come up with a story like Melville's life. And his family legacy actually lives on. So little known fact is that uh, the minor celebrity, the electronic uh, musician Moby, is actually one of his descendants. So his great, 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 great nephew or something. Artistic, so, and, channel is, uh, artistic talent apparently is genetic, right? Yeah. So Are that's you calling where Moby talented? Like I said, a minor celebrity of the Ooh. 1990s, perhaps. But um, yeah, he got his stage name from the I famous like Moby. Moby Dick. That guy in those Eminem song. songs. <laughs> he, can, he, he can get stopped Porcelain. by Obi. <laughs> yeah, um, better known from the Eminem, yeah, this. Porcelain, good songs from them from the movie The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio. I feel like that 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 Moby album from before is like fully featured in that movie, if any of you remember it. Good the soundtrack. Only, the only song of his I remember is the one where he's like, hey, hey, woman. Yeah, that's, 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 the the, one. that's the one. What's the, what's the name of that again? Porcelain. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's not a bad song. <laughs> okay, Victor, can you connect us to... I, I'm really into this idea that he was out of sync with his time for whatever reason and then became, you know, like the American novelist later on. So can you connect that to, uh, I guess, the germinating state of capitalism? I mean, this happens on Wall Street, but it's before Wall Street was Wall Street, which is a, a more than a happy accident, of course, but... How did his uh, position and the context lead from him becoming a quack to the great American novelist? Yeah, so perhaps because of his somewhat, you know, David Copperfield resume, as Matt noted as well, uh, he had a somewhat pessimistic vision at times of our ability to form meaningful narratives in this increasingly kind of industrialized, secularized world of the 1840s and 1850s in, in the U.S., and that's something that uh, this was a recurring interest for him. He comes back to this in a lot of his writing. And even before we kind of turn to Bartleby, it's worth actually foregrounding the opening of Moby Dick, because there is an interesting similarity there where Ishmael himself in the famous opening passages where, you know, he starts with call me Ishmael and everything like that, specifically remarks how he feels alienated and sort of like detached from the nine to five kind of work grind that he sees his peers having to participate in in New York City. And that's actually what kind of makes him look out to the sea and out to like a different kind of existence and what makes him ultimately join the, his, the fated whaling voyage. But he specifically kind of like comments at length on um, how he's, he, he doesn't understand how people can live sort of like tied to counters, nailed to benches, clinched to, to desks, basically kind of like as, as captives in the sort of office space environment which is what makes him then look to the broader kind of global sort of like stage that he could sort of live on. So already we see elements of Bartleby the Scrivener's own dissatisfaction, even in Moby Dick, even in Ishmael's own kind of like um, restlessness in New York City. And I would say in relation to the broader kind of cultural moment in the U.S., yeah, Melville's kind of interest in this restlessness, I think, highlights a tension maybe between 
America's growth as an industrialized economy during this time and its older kind of like frontier spirit, its emphasis on individualism, you know, self-reliance of making your own destiny and kind of not conforming to institutions. And there's this friction that you see start to emerge between that sort of American spirit and experience and the reality of having to become, you know, like a, a basically a, a, a human photocopier for the middle class, right? For so many Americans who had to do what Bartleby ends up having to do, right? So that tension between sort of your own, you know, manifest destiny, the frontier spirit as an individual, and then the, the reality of like having to work as a copyist, as a scrivener, that's something that Melville kind of recognized and put his pulse on. And something which, of course, only becomes more relevant as we go into the 20th century and, you know, labor takes on even more forms of significance. Yeah, I do uh, want to say that I worked as a secretary to a secretary at one point for a couple months. And my job was just responding to people's complaints, uh, usually via email, sometimes via lever. And there were parts of this that like personally resonated with me where I was just thinking like, holy fuck, like the m number of times I thought like I'd prefer not to do that. But then, of course, I did do it, right? Uh, it was just unfathomable. Oh, so. man. If you've ever worked in an office, this is the most relatable essay, you, or, yeah, short story you've ever read. Um, so I, I don't know if we have to do any more. I mean, this is really fascinating because he was kind of at the, the heartland. This is pre-Civil War, right, also? Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of the center of this new burgeoning uh, Republican power in New York City, Wall Street, and... I find it so fascinating that it wasn't recognized at the time. Did he die in obscurity or anything like that? Or did this book sell or did uh, Moby Dick sell by the end of his life? No, Apparently it Moby wasn't. Dick was like a catastrophic failure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. And Melville grew increasingly depressed. He lived for another couple of decades until the 1890s. But the critical reevaluation of Moby Dick did not begin until the 1920s. And it was actually the English press, like in the UK, who first took a renewed interest because it was the sort of the centennial of, of Melville's birth. But during his own life, he was very much the unappreciated kind of struggling artist. Yeah. Because this is yeah. a, this is incredible that you have this like urban professional class. This is supposed to be the land of opportunity, but then it's turning out to be you just sit and copy other people's work all day. Nothing's original. Nothing's expected of you to be original. So then there's this look to the uh, an old frontier, actually, like going to whale and then there's this mythologized journey that happens in Moby Dick where it's uh yeah like you said it sets off as this escape from um an entrapped cage of the urban even the middle class at this point I want to hmm. say though I do actually feel a little bit bad for him because he seemed to be cognizant of the fact that his rece the reception of that book was going to go south uh, like his first novel TP apparently was a huge success. Uh, and the person I was listening to was talking about the book said, what's not to like, you know, it was based on actual experience. It was about landing on an island with cannibals. He ends up getting a wife. So, you know, there's sex, violence, adventure, big, gigantic hit. And this is what people just expected Melville to keep churning out, you know, these kind of ocean adventure stories like Robert Louis Stevenson. And then he just, he wrote a letter apparently to Nathaniel Hawthorne saying, be it, you know, the public be damned. I know it's not going to sell a bit, but I have to express myself with this book. Uh, and he seemed cognizant of the fact that it was going to be a flop, and then it was. Um, and it's kind of disappointing when your low expectations of the public turn out to be vindicated, uh, and nobody actually wants to deal with like this big meaty story. They just want sex and violence and cannibalism. 
Uh, I guess because it's tastier, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it is worth noting that Melville seems to have kind of revised his plans even for Moby Dick. Like he started writing off the more conventional kind of Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, maritime adventure. But then he also got caught up in kind of the some of the literary currents of, of the time, including Nathaniel Hawthorne, as you mentioned, but also Walt Whitman, kind of the American literary renaissance of the 1850s. And he had a, a grander idea in mind. He wanted to kind of write, you know, the, the existential epic of the century. So he definitely kind of delivered something far more unconventional. And the audience just wasn't ready for it. Like the public was not sure what to make of this strange novel. Again, the reception was somewhat warmer in England, ironically, again. But in most of the U.S., yeah, this this novel was a failure. And then eventually he had to kind of settle for writing short stories like Bartleby. But you could tell that even there, of course, he's still kind of pushing back against what's expected of him. Like he still is very much a nonconformist as a writer and sort of a public figure. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you about my interpretation uh, of this, because I'm sure the others are going to give a, a fairly left wing interpretation of it, which I think it's. I mean, there's nothing wrong with interpreting a talks like this in a variety of different ways, because I think it lends itself precisely this kind of archetypal quality, right, where you read into it the expectations of your era. But one of the things that I noted is that one of the only figures that he refers to twice in the text is Cicero, uh, in particular, the bust of Cicero, which itself is telling. Uh, and Cicero was this famously aristocratic uh, member of the optimate class in Republican Rome uh, who fought against, oddly enough, the populist princip uh, sorry, uh, populares of Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Uh, insisting that, you know, the Senate uh, needs to kind of push back against the degradation of the people. Um, and eventually they lost. And of course, you know, the populace rose to power and eventually we get the Roman Empire and stuff. And Cicero ends up getting killed. Right. But the way that I interpreted this was he was kind of almost a modern Cicero. Uh, he has this kind of aristocratic veneer, not quite necessarily working class, uh, but almost above uh, the kind of mediocrity of the middle class that's insisting that you engage in these banal tasks in order to make money and elevate yourself. Uh, he has like higher aspirations and interests than that. Would that be like a, a wrong interpretation? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to remember, too, that everything we see about Bartleby is from the narrator's point of view, right? Or from the lawyer's point of view, his boss. So his boss doesn't understand him. He, he can't sort of classify him in any of the conventional categories that would make sense to him. So, of course, he tries to think of him as a vagrant, as somebody who's not doing his job, you know, loafer but of course he can be seen as somebody who has a much more noble kind of like response to the work that he is sort of being forced to do bartleby can be seen as kind of like this he, he can seem to have an almost aristocratic detachment a ciceronian sense of like this work being beneath him so it's very notable that we don't sort of see bartleby's own perspective or his own thought process as to why is he refusing why does he prefer not to do what the lawyer boss ex expects of him right and that's what makes this, I think, what has made it such a rich text for critical readings, because there is no final answer. We have to sort of finish it ourselves. We have to interpret it on our own terms in terms of like, why does Bartleby not conform to the expectations presented of him? OK, so since you've brought up the context of the story, we might as well go over the story. Um, spoiler alert, we're going to spoil it. But uh, does anyone want to take that on? Eric, you haven't, you haven't talked much. You want to summarize what happens for us? Yeah, I mean, basically, um, the narrator, who is also the owner of this business of scrivenering, um, it, it, yeah, it's a, it's, well, it's a law firm, but it seems like they mostly specialize in um, certain kinds of property and uh, certain kinds of like really boring out of the way cases. The guy said he's 
the the owner's not one who to do the sort of valiant lawyering in front of a jury and like no no romantic view of of lawyers for this guy he's just like a law firm slash copyist firm and what happens is um he gets appointed to this mysterious office that i'm not sure of called the chancery which to my understanding uh dealt was the highest court of appeal in the united states and in many places until it got sort of you know absorbed into the uh supreme court um, but this new appointment that he receives necessitates his hiring a new Scrivener to supplement his office for the extra work they'll be getting. He already has three very sort of colorful, strange characters uh, working for him. And then his uh, search for a new employee leads him to receive this uh, Bartleby as an applicant who he uh, promptly hires not realizing the extent of the strangeness of this guy. He just seems like a kind of laid back, very morose, not very, uh, very lack of affect kind of guy. And he works day and night. And um, I mean, we already sort of went over the rest of it. You know, this guy Bartleby <laughs> refuses. He, rep he refuses to do anything except sit at his desk and work, you know, and just copy and copy and copy but he refuses and, so politely to he prefers not to which is what's yeah. so frustrating about it that's it's also in, phrase it's, al it's also interesting that he does keep doing his job at least to the beginning right like nominally like he's just he's doing the copying it's just like initially i think like the boss is like come come to come to this meeting in my office where we can like go over the copying to like look for errors or something like that yeah and then he's just like i would prefer not to and yeah there's like, parts but still of a copyist job this reminds me so much of like working in an office and you have to do all this team building shit and you have to go to meetings that don't actually involve you. They just say, we'd like you to know what's going on. And the most relieving thing would be to say, I prefer not to and not have to go. But then, of course, your job's on the line. <laughs> yeah, it reminded me almost of one of those morale building exercises that they do where it's like, listen, you know, your company and the people at it really care about you. So come to us and share your feelings. Uh, and you know perfectly well that because of the power dynamics involved, you can't just fucking say how you really feel about it. And what's kind of sharply amazing about this is he does say how he feels about it. And his argument is, I don't want to go to these fucking morale building exercises where I tell you how I feel. I feel I prefer not to, right? It's really refreshing in a lot of ways. Yeah, and the, and the setup of the, the office is kind of significant as well, right? Like we've been talking about Cicero a bit. There's a, there's a bust of Cicero prominently on display in the boss's office. Really, it's just one room that's divided in two by glass doors. There's a sort of view of a brick wall <laughs> in, in like a, a sort of one of those internal light shafts inside of buildings. There's a window that's viewing a brick wall. And then there's the other side of the office. Not really much to look at. I, I kind of picture this office almost as like a reprise of the inside of the whale. It's, it's an enclosure and it's got a certain kind of division. The boss has got his own half, which he ends up sticking... Um, uh, Bartleby in the corner of his half of the office. And then his three very odd and irritable employees <laughs> are in the other half. 
And he calls them in to do the reading of the copies, of course. And that's the first thing that Bartleby refuses to do is check his work, basically. All he wants to do is sit there day and night and copy. They they don't say that, or he doesn't say this explicitly, but is, is Turkey just a drunk? Because he says he, he comes in, he's morose, he's in a good temper. But then as the day goes on, his face gets redder. He gets more animated and angry. Yeah, there's something about him drinking beer with, uh, with their oddly calling dinner, which seems to be lunchtime. And yeah, so and then there's this weird swap, right, where Turkey, the first guy becomes very irritable and excitable and crazy in the afternoon. Whereas the other guy, Nippers, is this. Oh, yeah. Can, can I just say the nicknames really strange too? Like, dude what's in the, the morning? They're street, yeah, street they're, names. This, <laughs> they're supposed to, they're nicknames and they're supposed to express something about their characters. So Turkey yeah. is like a short, squat, out of breath English guy. And Nippers is always grinding his teeth, right? And Ginger Nut is the boy of the office who goes out to get the Ginger Nut cakes and brings them back. <laughs> <laughs> so they all kind of like, they're these really sort of flat, almost like literary caricature people who just have these sorts of very prominent features, but no real backstory. They're just, they're, they're very, I don't know. They're, they're, they're satirical. They're just like yeah. pure personalities with a couple but traits. It, and it's, but it's worth really noting funny. too, like contrasting them with Bartleby, how predictable they are, right? Like one guy is yeah. reliably more productive in the morning. The other one sh swaps with him and he's more productive in the afternoon. And so this is like almost there's, there's a reliability to them, which then completely goes out the window with Bartleby. That's what kind of sets up the punchline with I would prefer. Does he even try like at the beginning? Am I am I misremembering or does the boss also like talk about like how the nicknames and how he's trying to think of one for Bartleby, how he'll like eventually develop one, but never does? Or is that is that is that my imagination? I don't recall them thinking of a nickname for Bartleby. I th they just kind of refer to him well he Bartleby. doesn't I, I know he doesn't but i thought like he there's a i thought there's like an antidote where he talks about like why how he thinks about the other employees and exactly like predictably he like talks about how like oh like whatever turkey does this and he's and it's like just like victor was saying like the predictability but i thought he also said something like you know eventually i'll get a name once i understand this new employee Bartleby, like he'll get one, but he never does, right? He, he never, never does, does exactly. And it, it's 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 worth noting how he does describe Bartleby because it's an increasingly like kind of uncanny terms, like oh, this apparition, this this incubus who haunts the office, right? Like he's really unsettled by the fact that he can't give him a nickname in a way that he can't really assert his authority in the office with him. Yeah, yeah he's he, very he can't put him in a box. Like, yeah, I, I want to say though, like I, I did. I think uh, Eric, what Eric said is, or what you said, Victor, uh, is really telling, right? Because there is almost this Dickensian quality to the three central characters. Like when I heard the name Turkey and Ginger Nut, it really reminded me of like, oh, Fezziwig or Mr. Murdstone, where the minute you hear the name, you think, oh, oh this is who this person's going to be in the story. And Dickens had a real knack for that. But like Bartleby almost kind of is insulated uh, from this attempt to kind of classify him under the label of any of these kinds of cliches or expectations, right? Uh, but like even more than that, right? Um, it's the fact that you know he deliberately provokes the characters around him into acting in ways that are counter to their own initial inclinations. Uh, so there's almost this expectation that because you have these characters at the outset that are supposed to behave this way, you know what's going to happen, and then his presence prevents them from acting in the scripted way, which is big reason why it is that they all react so fiercely to him. Oh, by the way, Pills, uh, there is a point where they do reference that Turkey is a drunk. Uh, it's when his boss tries to get him a coat 
Uh, and he says, the problem with Turkey is that a man who likes to drink like he does can't also afford a nice coat. So in the contest between the coat and the drink, uh, the drink always wins. Uh, and then he goes on to say, I, so I just bought him a coat one day and it didn't make any difference because it came in and he was greasy and smelly anyway, which <laughs> I thought was pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. They're really insubordinate, but he finds a way to sort of work with them, right? Like Turkey's really productive in the morning. So he gives them all this work to do in the morning, but then he sort of spills ink everywhere and is really clumsy and, and turns to this red faced drunk guy in the afternoon. So he's like, okay, you just give him like sort of busy work to do. And then this other guy is who Kind of, I don't know, Nippers is a bit of a strange dude, right? He never sleeps well. So he always comes in like he's woken up on the wrong side of the bed. He's pissy. He, he'll, the boss will glance out and see him like fighting with his desk. Like he's almost like an, a precise engineer trying to just get his desk just right. It's too high. It makes his, it, it makes his arms lose their circulation, right? Oh, it's too low. He has to hunch over. It makes his back hurt. He's putting little pieces of paper under his desk to get it just right. And then he'll look back a few minutes later and nippers will be like wrestling with his desk. Like it's got a mind of its own. It's a, yeah. It's a, or when he says like, I send Ginger Nut out to get those cakes, but then Turkey is fucking drunk and fat. So he just eats like six of them all in a go. And I have to send him out to get more, right? Like, it's really, it's great stuff. <laughs> and they're how really funny. That, like, the, the boss kind of just accepts that low-key alcoholism or insomnia is just part of the job. Like, it says so much about the workspace, about the kind of work that these people have to do. Yeah. Also, it's it, it, it says something about like the manager, like his managerial philosophy. He's just like, OK, like I'm going to like my he, almost like he's like, I, my job is to like I have these people and I'm going to like work with them and I'll find a way. It's just but I need to understand them first. I need to see their patterns and then I'll be able to like plug them in and then this will be the solution. He has that. And then you can tell as the narrative goes on when he tries to solve Bartleby and he just can't, you know. Typical office environment. We got all our characters. I just want to finish sort of the synopsis here. Um, he increasingly gets frustrated, but not specifically mad at Bartleby. Because whenever he asks Bartleby to do anything, he says, can you go pick something up from the post office? I would prefer not to. Can you come go over these edits with me? I would prefer not to. And then he just asks him the most basic thing. Can you go get the guy from the other room and tell him to come here? I would prefer not to. Bartleby, like, where are you from? <laughs> I would prefer not to speak on that at this time. So he yeah. just refuses to work with this guy at all. We only get the boss's inner monologue, and he brings in all this uh, like Christian morality sort of language and says, this, was, this is one of the most miserable, pitiable creatures I've ever seen. I knew I couldn't fire him because if I fired him, then a worse boss would not treat him as well as I'm treating him. So it's almost, um, we know that it's written in the past tense. It's almost justifying that he did everything he could for this guy. The guy just wouldn't obey, wouldn't serve. Um, and then we find out by the end of the story, Bartleby eventually refuses to work. So the yeah, boss he, moves his entire law firm to a different building <laughs> and just leaves yeah. Bartleby standing in the middle of the room by himself. But he, he refused to leave too. Even he stops paying him. He gives him like a severance package bonus and Bartleby refuses to leave. He just wants to stand in the office. Like this guy's sleeping in the office. So then the building living, okay, living just off to of quick, these cakes. Just to quickly finish. Then the building manager tries to re-rent out the office. Bartleby is still standing in there. Long story short, Bartleby ends up in prison, not having 
committed an actual crime. They never charge him with anything, but they, he won't move. So he ends up in prison there. They start trying to feed him. He says, I don't like eating dinner. I prefer not to eat dinner. And eventually he starves to death in prison. And that's the end of the story. And then there's a weird, uh, a weird appendix at the end, but I'm, I'm not sure how to interpret that. But anyway, Victor, I wanted you to uh, catch us up on how, how we go about literary interpretation of this whole almost increasingly absurd story. No, that's the thing. Yeah, it, it gets almost Kafka-esque, right? And in our little Dickensian, you know, 19th century short story, once Bartleby shows up, the other characters have no clue how to deal with him because he really is like from another century, from another genre. They just like look at each other and they shrug like, why aren't you sort of conforming to the script? Why aren't you one of the office employees, right? He just doesn't want to. He starts and, to infect the others too, interestingly. Yeah. Right? They all start to use this word prefer without with – they say prefer to this, prefer that. Would you prefer me I've to go here I've never used the there? word prefer before, but I find myself yeah. suddenly using it. Doesn't even notice. I think there's a really important point um, this Ariner makes about himself relative to Bartleby at the very beginning, uh, which kind of explains why these characters are there and why he tolerates them, but also like his relationship to Bartleby, which he's, he says, I'm a guy who always wants – things to be easy, right? I always am the person who thinks that the easiest path is the one that you should take, right? And what's kind of paradoxical about him is, despite the fact that his that's his philosophy, he's the one who does almost all the work in the short story, right? He ends up moving offices, hauling ass somewhere else, is just desperately trying to placate Bartleby. And Bartleby, despite the fact that he doesn't adopt this kind of philosophy of taking it easy, if anything, he's extremely hard on himself near the end. He's the one who actually does actually absolutely nothing at the finale of it, right? He just stands there, like Pills was saying, then lets himself get dragged to prison and then dies. Uh, so there's this really interesting juxtaposition between a man who wants to take things easy and winds up turning his whole life around because of somebody who just will do nothing but stand in one place and looking out and look at a wall. Right? Yeah. And to your point, Pills, so at the literary level, like Bartleby's almost like an anti-character, right? Like he kind of blows up the story because this is, a, you know, you're expecting a more typical kind of office space, comedic kind of short story. And then this existential character shows up again, who clearly is not like really at home in the 19th century at this point in terms of what American readers were expecting. And he just completely throws the story upside down. And so that's what's really interesting here is that, you know, you can almost see what how Melville's readers would have reacted to a story like this, or even to like Moby Dick, like we were talking about earlier, They're, they would be like as confused as the bosses as to like, why are you subverting the expectations? Why are you not playing along with the system, right? Whether it's like genre expectations or like economic expectations. He's like, you know, that's what's so interesting here, that this is working at many different levels. Yeah, it made me think like if, if a Terrence Malick character just happened to step into like the office or something, and like Michael Scott was just like, how the fuck am I supposed to deal with you? And he just kept on saying these very soft epigrams. But then there's a voiceover where there's all these profound thoughts flowing. Right. It's just this person doesn't belong in this genre. But I think that's kind of where a lot of the comedy comes out. Right. Yeah. And Scrivener's are an odd bunch, as the uh, narrator sort of relates. But he wants to focus on this one. He's, he wants to tell this story of Bartleby, even though he doesn't know anything about him. Because Bartleby wouldn't say anything ever. You can't ask him who he is, where he's from, if he has any relatives, nothing. It's just this unicorn fucking character who we just get a few snippets of his last bit of his life. 
It's also interesting about the way that the boss kind of tells himself like his rationalizations. So like for me, there's a bit of ambiguity about what it meant because pills was saying like, there's all this Christian morality there. And like, I mean, I, I like it's true that came across, but like, I don't know, like, the, like my thought when I was reading it was more that he's such a coward uh, or something that like that, like he's just making up these rationalizations for like how, what a good person he is when really he's just like a non-confrontational coward who like, who like doesn't know how to, how to like, how to just like say like, get the fuck out of here and like exert some force because he's always been able to finagle his employees to do what he wants with these kinds of like generous, nice things, but is really non-confrontational. So I didn't, I didn't see the main motivation as being Christian morality. I saw it as just like the boss's own psychological cowardice. Uh, he's he's fascinated by him, right? He's fascinated and repelled by this character. And then he and then the rationalizations too. He like talks about how he's like, oh, what a poor soul. Like it's like I'm gonna help him. I'm gonna do these things. And then to me, I'm just like, you're just lying to yourself because you're just too scared to just like do what's necessary. Well, like any normal boss would just be like set this guy out on his ass immediately, obviously. But he kind of like you know the delay of the, what, what do you call it the. Uh, the delay of the desire of this story is that he's trying to indulge this guy. Sure, I'd like Christian grounds, but really, that's just a justification for it. Bartleby is completely disarming in his sort of, you know, if there's a hint of of combativeness in his utterances of this phrase over and over, I'd prefer not to, then, you know, the boss would say, ah, there's the spark of humanity. I'm going to fuck this guy up. But Bartleby is almost like an automaton with no affect whatsoever, just complete, like placid as a lake. <laughs> His emotions are just like all flat, nothing and it there. Is, and it is interesting, like the, when, in thinking about like um, non-confrontational kind of and like avoiding pure confrontation. I mean, clearly like Bartleby's like form of resistance is also very non-confrontational, right? So it's like you have two non-confrontational characters. Like, re, like so it's like, because Bartleby's just like, I would prefer not to. He never just says directly no. Um and then like the boss also just like is is flummoxed and and is dealing with it in very non-confrontational manners so it's like <laughs> so it's like none, neither of them actually says like kind of what what i mean i mean bartleby's clear right he's like i would prefer not to but he, but he's doing it in a very like the the least confrontational way of saying no possible and that's like zizek's shirt's interpretation of the story right is it's the great refusal it's what we need to do to capitalism <laughs> is just affir say aff no affirming the negative the boss describes yeah. several times i mean bartleby is living in this guy's head rent free like every day the boss is trying to work but he's focused on bartleby and then he describes how much power Bartleby has over him. Even just like he shows up to the office on a Sunday. No one's supposed to be in the office. He's going to go like pick up some work. Bartleby's in there just like sleeping or changing or something. And he goes, uh, I'm not done yet. Go walk around the block a few times. And the guy does it and then describes to us the reader. I don't I don't know why I did that. I just felt like there was nothing else I could do because he'd never been uh, challenged before. No, and it's great to or, see how this really undermines his authority over his own workspace, right? Over like his firm there, because by the end of it, he's almost like convincing himself that like, no, this this must be like have been predestined by God. This is my struggle to bear. Like he's trying yeah. to justify it. Like he's searching for meaning as to why he has to deal with Bartleby. All because like he senses like the, the limits of coercion with someone like this, right? Like he is actually sort of like his life begins to revolve around Bartleby. Bartleby is just there, right? 
he's not really doing anything. But yeah, the questions of agency are so interesting here as to like who's really free and who isn't. Yeah. But that's what I was going to get at. I don't really think that the landlord, if you want, uh, reflects like a genuine kind of Christian morality. I think that Pills is absolutely right that it's a kind of satire of Christian morality because it's really like a kind of white middle class Christian morality, right? Where almost everything that he's doing is about his own self-gratification uh, or trying to placate his uneasy conscience. Uh, because one of the things that's distinctive about this, you know, this story is that he never really makes a sincere effort to try to understand Bartleby the way that Bartleby might understand him. He's not interested in his own internal life, his own soul, if you want. All that he tends to think about is this would be a nice thing to do for him, or he wants the same things that I do, so I just need to find the lever uh, and I'll get him to move, right? Uh, and in many ways, there's this kind of almost proto-Nietzschean satire uh, of all the different ways that he tries to construe this indifference to his inner life uh, as some kind of moral act on the boss's part, uh, when really it all services this kind of narcissistic yearning for acceptance, Uh and for gratification from somebody who makes it really clear from the get-go that he's not going to give it to that guy, right? He has no interest. He prefers not to give him any of that kind of recognition or consolation. Man, Michael Scott popped into my head more than more than a few times reading this. Like he wants to be friends with anybody, everybody, but he cannot stand that this guy does not like him, does not want to be friends with him, wants nothing from him, and then doesn't like accept his 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 generosity as a as a boss. Yeah. And that's why people don't really like Michael Scott a lot of the times, right? Because most of the nice things that he does for people are kind of faux and they're, he doesn't really pay that much attention to his employees, his people. He just kind of does what he thinks that they want. Uh, whereas Bartleby makes it like emphatically clear what he doesn't want, at least. He kind of wants to be left alone and he prefer not to do any of the bullshit that he's told to do. Uh, and that's the one thing he can't wrap his head around. Right? So, Victor, can you help us out with the, the the dominant reading of this story now is a class analysis. It's we got the boss, we got the lower class, the lower class not understood, the boss, you know, making every effort to be friendly, but still doesn't understand authority being subverted in this way. Are there other readings of this or is that kind of what you think uh, Melville was going for. Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways to approach this text. You could look at it again as like the writer being misunderstood by society at the most basic kind of autobiographical level. Everything from that to even, you know, like disabled readings, queer readings, right? Like, okay, the worker who does not receive the accommodation he needs, or even we could like turn it on its head. Okay, the conservative point of view, a cautionary tale about welfare system abuse. Like <laughs> there's really something here for everyone. There's, I was actually reminded of a Simpsons moment where um, Ned Flanders is asked by one of his sons, like, why do we pay taxes? And he says, well, you know, it's partly for the people who just don't want to work. God bless him. And that's kind of, yeah, I mean, maybe that's Bartleby's situation by the end. He's just, he wants to be in it, but not of it. He's just part of society, but not really in the way that society needs him to be. So we could be critical of Bartleby too. There's, we could take the side of the narrator. Why not? Yeah, I wonder if this this sort of image at the end we get. Think about of, the think about the capitalist. What about him? He had to move his whole office, put turn his yeah. whole life upside down. I mean, the poor man, right? He tried everything. You see that like part in the end, right, where Bartleby's in prison. I don't know if this is the like sort of origin of this image. You know, you th you picture like um, 1984, right? This like this sort of 
horrible totalitarian world. But somehow, you know, like a blade of grass blooms through all the heavy, the heavy like machinery, right? And like love sort of finds a way. And in the end of this story too, like, you know, Bartleby's there in prison and then he writes, you know, comparing this prison to like an Egyptian pyramid where people are just entombed. He says in the heart of this pyramid here, where by some strange magic through the clefts, grass seed dropped by birds had sprung. And there's little, there's this sort of, we're left at this image of grass growing through the like cracks in the prison floor. And it's, it's a really strange sort of image. I don't know what it is. It's supposed to be, I, I guess it's been interpreted in an almost, you know, going to like, Byun Chul Han's reading of, or actually this is a Gombin's reading, gives it a kind of um, a messianic interpretation, right? The sky and the blades of grass and it's like, I don't know, Bartleby almost as like a messiah, you know, Byun Chul Han will completely disagree with this reading, but you know, these weird sorts of moments, I guess they, they recommend that reading in a way. Can I ask you a different question, Victor? Because this is kind of that the this is one of the problems I've always had with Melville, uh, and I've never been able to wrap my head around it. So maybe you'll have the answer, right? Because I've seen a lot of different readings of Moby Dick, which I'm more familiar with, which try to really insist uh, that the the story is an allegory, you know. And they'll say Ishmael is Ishmael from the Bible. The whale is God. Ahab is you know. Insert your favorite thing. Lucifer, you know, is one I've seen a lot, you know, uh, and you could do something similar to this, which is to try to read into this, like, oh, you know, the boss represents capitalism, Bartleby represents the oppressed workers, that's the allegory of the story, right? But it, it seems to me that this is a story, kind of like my interpretation of Moby Dick, that almost distances itself from the possibility of being read allegorically. It almost seems to invite archetypal kinds of readings, where you're going to deliberately read into it what it is that you want to see, uh, because there's so many different ways that this was deliberately intended to be construed. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, th I think at some level, as long as we're trying to sort of pin Bartleby down and interpret it in, in one way, we're still kind of doing what his boss is doing, right? We're trying to give him like a nickname. But in some ways, yeah, you're right. Maybe Melville is actually inviting us to kind of go beyond that level and to recognize like there's something deeply ungraspable here and that's fine. Like you have to be okay with that kind of ambiguity. And he does sort of, yeah, it's so hyper allegorical in some ways. He's almost like tossing out so many little references, you know, Cicero, Egypt, everything that, yeah, I think that in some ways, yeah, you could sort of compare it to Moby Dick, where ultimately, like, you don't want to kind of fall into like Ahab's position and try to like figure out what does the white whale mean? What does Bartleby mean? Like, it's more about the process of interpretation itself, that perhaps Melville is kind of trying to steer us towards It's to actually like, it's, it's, it's a meditation on critical reading, right? And more more so than the actual sort of like destination of like the definitive take on this character or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right, because the, the narrator really projects like the possibility of his own salvation onto Bartleby. Right. Like Bartleby's a blank slate. He's a he's a he's a blank piece of paper. And the narrator, you know, in the end, oddly, like spoiler alert, when Bartleby sort of dies in the end. Right. He just kind of stops living and and he touches him and he feels that he's cold 
And then when the the grub man of, of the prison asks, you know, oh, dinner's ready. Is he coming? And he said, uh, no, he's sleeping. Uh, <laughs> oh, he's asleep. And then the narrator ends the sort of main part of the story ends with him saying he's sleeping with kings and counselors. The sort of odd, wistful moment that the narrator ends on. Like Bartleby becomes almost like a prop in in the narrator's own internal epic rather than. Yeah, and rather than a substantial character. So I kind of get that reading where Bartleby resists interpretation. So we just kind of violently appropriate him for our own sort of thoughts, right? But then there's this weird epilogue. And in this weird epilogue, the narrator finds out that uh, Bartleby came from the dead letter office and dead letters are like dead men. So he he kind of um, exhumes his conscience at the end of the story saying there was something wrong with this guy before I got him. I didn't fuck him up. He was fucked up before he got here. <laughs> and it's going to be like until the yeah. early 20th century, like 60 years after this was written, that we get the internal monologues of character like Bartleby in Camus or Kafka, where you get what Bartleby is actually thinking. But until then, it's kind of just projection from the outside. Because yeah, I'm just going to give full disclosure, right? Like, I was, I've been so used to the left-wing reading of this that I immediately went into it thinking that that's what I was going to see, right? Like, I was going to see basically a proto-Marxist Bartleby, you know, carrying the red flag before the red flag even existed, right? And I, I like that reading. I think there's nothing wrong with it. But like I said, the, the way that I came away from it was almost the exact opposite reading, where I saw him as almost a kind of nostalgic reactionary figure, you know, a man outside of modernity who resists his vulgarity uh, and has this kind of nobility to him. Uh, that resists being reduced to the level of the mass uh, and refuses to abide by that, right? Which is not, which is a very different reading than that one, right? But now I'm kind of wondering if that's just also me reading too much into the Cicero comments, kind of like Victor was saying, you know, seeing those as the clues to answer the riddle of what this is about and imposing my own kind of answer into like Bartleby equals, you know, the modern Cicero or something, right? So, uh, well, I mean, so has, Bartleby I could have had this, this entire Nietzschean monologue going all the time. Like this fucking <laughs> asshole is telling me to do stuff. I'm just going to say no. <laughs> it's hard to believe that there is anything going on in there. He seemed just kind of dead inside. No, it's it's hard. It's hard to believe that there hasn't been a follow up from like Bartleby's point of view. Right. Like the the, the untold story. And it is mm. something like comically Nietzschean or something. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I also think like the 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 one of the things about the left wing reading, I mean, because I came into it hearing, I mean, I'd read what philosophers like Zizek um, had said about it, but I hadn't actually read the, the the short story myself, and you know, reading it like coming away from it, I I guess I do I do see like the left wing potential, I suppose, but I also I don't know, but to me it's like, well, he just like dies at the end, and he just, I mean, he just seems like a like a like a madman, like he doesn't seem. He died like a, a hero, Victor. He died a hero. He just, but he, I don't know, <laughs> but it and it's I don't know, it it just doesn't it doesn't that that reading doesn't seem as clear cut to me after after actually reading the source material. All right, let me go into these. A hero. Um, I don't know if you guys if you have the just interrupt need. me if you have any uh, points, but. The left-wing reading that we're re referencing generally is sort of shared by Agamben, Hart, Negri, and Zizek. And Deleuze and Byung-Chul Han have a different reading against those that left-wing reading. But it's generally, if you're in a system where you, if you're saying no to the system, then you're basically accepting its authority. But this is revolutionary because not only is he just not saying no, but he's affirming 
an, a negation saying, I prefer not to. He's not saying, no, I won't, but just, I prefer not to, meaning he's not giving any assent to the system. You can force me to go to the prison. I prefer not to. You can force me to work. I prefer not to. And by that mechanism, I think, which is accurate to the story, he takes away all of the boss's power. The boss has no idea what to do with him. And in terms of agency in the story, Bartleby ends up becoming the most agentic character. Like after he moves his office, basically a mob comes over and says, <laughs> yo, you fucking left this dude in our apartment building. You have to get rid of him. And he goes, well, how, why do I have to get rid of him? I don't know him. He's, he was just a former employee, but he causes such a big stir about around the city and around the system by not doing anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely right. I mean, um, yeah. Speaking of Christian characters, you know, there we go. You can interpret him maybe not as the modern Christian, like Cicero, but the modern Christ. You know what I mean? A man too good for this world because he refused to work and shown a light of shame upon the rest of us, or something. All right. Well, here's here, here's a one quote from Zizek's uh, parallax view. He says um, Bartleby symbolizes sort of the pass from a politics of resistance or protestation, which parasitizes upon that which it negates to a politics which opens up a new space outside of the he hegemonic position and its negation. So he just passes beyond negation into a totally new space. Victor, what do you, how do you feel about that reading? Well, I was, wait, which, which I meant I meant you here? because you said you don't buy this. I didn't say I don't buy it. It just didn't seem as a clear to me anyway. I mean, I, I, I think that he's, um, you know, this like, but there's also no content to Bartleby that we can see so it's like so so it's like yeah sure he's like affirming a negation but it's like for what like like there's nothing there's no content he's just standing in an office till like uh, until people remove him and then he just like decides not to eat there's nothing there's nothing it's just it's just a pure negation yeah it's the sort of master slave kind of like boss worker interpretation whereas like you know Byung-Chul Han goes for the more like psychological interpretation so he disagrees but like Agamben for instance kind of reads it along the same line right he elevates Bartleby into this sort of metaphysical ontotheological character right and he said like so Agamben makes these grand pronouncements which you'd be probably hard pressed to find evidence for in the text except for giving Agamben the creative room to say, this is the philosophical constellation to which Bartleby the Scrivener belongs as a scribe who has stopped writing. Bartleby is the extreme figure of the nothing from which all creation <laughs> derives. And at the same time, he constitutes the most implicable vindication of this nothing as pure, absolute <laughs> potentiality. Scrivener become the writing tablet. He is now nothing other than his white sheet, right? <laughs> so this, this idea of oh, in this negative act signals the infinite potentiality is this reading that, you know, the, the kind of Hegelian master-slave reading of the sort of absolute negativity of the act of refusal. And, and you know, Byung-Chul Han just doesn't have that. You know, he says, like, Byung-Chul Han's reading is more, you know, Bartleby is a product of a disciplinary society, right? Because what Melville's describing is a disciplinary society. There's walls, there's dividers, there's interiors, there's prisons. Yeah, there's there's references to internment and in, interring in in death tombs and things like that, right? And Bartleby actually has this condition we'd probably describe today as neurasthenia, 
where he's just completely dead and flat, flat affect, right? He's got nothing going on in there. And he's just this sort of, you know, reading Byung-Chul Han, reading it into his book called The Burnout Society, right? Well, in Melville's day, it hasn't reached this sort of be-all-you-can-be excess, right? This achievement society we live in, right? Like the Nike just do it society. They're still in the disciplinary society of the 19th century. So Bartleby is a kind of product of that milia where he manifests this complete refusal to do anything, even eat and feed himself. And, you know, it's a very kind of deflationary reading when you read it up against the sorts of meanings that Agamben and Zizek want to put into it, but I don't know about the other ones. Who who else interprets this? Can I just summarize these three positions just in case anyone's not on track? So Agamben, for Agamben, this is the site of pure potentiality because Bartleby has escaped the dialectic. He refuses to be a master, refuses to be a slave. He just opts out. For Byung-Chul Han, he's the figure of burnout condemned to a bureaucracy Well, all he does is copy other people's work with no relief. The pre-burnout burnout. burnout. (laughs) He's like like the the disciplinary society's ultimate product. It's it's ultimate positivity. No no drive, no apathy, crushed spirit. Then the third reading is Zizek's, and Zizek is saying this is a correct response to modern capitalism today which is the self-help. You've got to go to the gym. You've got to do this. You've got to be an ethical consumer. You've got to pay attention to politics everywhere. And I would prefer not to is kind of the correct escape from that. So the thing is, I, I resist that a little bit because even though I think, again, it can be... Which one do you resist? Kind of the ethos underpinning all of them, which is to kind of interpret them as a radical or insurrectionary figure. Uh, and the reason is that First off, like Eric said, I don't think there's a lot of textual evidence to support that. But beyond wait, that, dude, again, wait, dude. Last week, you were fine with violent readings when it was Zizek putting words into Deleuze's mouth. But now that it's philosophers putting words into a blank character's mouth, now you're going to take offense to textual evidence? Sure, sure. And I have no problem with that. And But I think, again, if you interpret him, it's very hard for me to read him as a kind of heroic figure, right? Uh, it seems to me that he's leading a kind of petty bourgeois life. His boss makes it pretty clear that he's not exactly going to go hard on his employees, right? That they can eat cakes and drink and have a good time and do whatever it is they want in the office as long as they're relatively productive. Uh, And he himself ends up dying. And there's not even a sense that there's this kind of either Christian or Buddhist quality to his passing away uh, in the sense of either escaping suffering or vindicating suffering through his death as a kind of grace. He's just gone, right? And it would seem to me that if Melville was trying to convey this kind of insurrectionary quality to him, something like that would be suggested in the text, right? And I have no problem with, you know, as I put it, a violent reading of this. Uh, But the reason why I resisted is also, it seems to me that if we were to interpret the inner monologue of somebody like Bartleby, it wouldn't be as an insurrectionary figure that what kept on coming to mind when I thought about him was something more like Dostoevsky's underground man, right? Who refuses, but does so out of almost spite in a certain sense, right? That he's going to cancel the dialectic of existence by just negating even his own desires uh, for existence uh, and doing something that's so contrarian that even if it hurts him, uh, it's still kind of free act, right? Or has this free quality. And that's not, that's not intended as a compliment. I have a textual right? evidence against that, at least from the narrator's point of view, of course. But he said... 
Nothing was so aggravating to me as an earnest person in passive resistance. Poor fellow, I thought. He means no mischief. It is plain he intends no insolence. His aspect sufficiently evinces me that it's his in eccentricities. Okay, yeah, so maybe it, it, it lacks that quality. But, well, well, that's that, but that's interesting because that to me, like I remember when I read that, I was like, oh, like he just wants to avoid confrontation. So he's just telling himself this yeah. story that it's like, oh, he's not actually like doing anything malicious. Like he's just, that's just his weird peculiarity because it's like, it's, it's allowing him to defer responsibility to actually have to respond in a confrontational manner. That's how I read it. When the narrator does visit him in the prison at the end, though, he can tell it's clear that Bartleby blames him that he ended up in prison. So I, oh, I interesting, would, yeah. yeah. He had some responsibility towards him, it seems. Yeah. No, I, I, I really like these readings like Agamben's that like, you know, Bartleby is actually Neo in the Matrix or something. And he just like, <laughs> at the end of the first movie, he says no. And he just uh -huh. stops the bullets from Agent Smith. I, I think that's... That says a lot more about like Agamben's reading than it does about Melville's story. But no, I, th I think that Zizek is probably closest to like maybe the spirit of the story where, I mean, he compares Bartleby's I prefer not to with the, the like protest politics of Occupy Wall Street, where, OK, like it's great to clear the table kind of, but you have to offer a viable alternative afterward. Right. And so that's the problem with Bartleby ends up just dying. Right. Like he negates himself out of existence. So if, if we're going to read this politically, I think. It's an interesting first step, but I think Zizek would suggest it's not enough. I prefer not to. And then, you know, like there has to be something more to this. Yeah, that's yeah, what that I meant about the underground kind of reading, right? Which is that this guy also has a kind of radical antagonism towards modernity, but his primary target at the end of the day is always himself, right? And it's hard for me not to look at this and say, I admire the fact that he did dissociate from the system. But it seems like the, the main outcome of this is that he ends up dying and suffering uh, at the end. And it's hard for me to interpret this as a kind of heroic act that presents him as an insurrectionary figure the way some of these people seem to want, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly how I felt about like feeling like, yeah, it's interesting, but there's like no content. It's just like there's like an emptiness to it. There's, it's just I mean, it's true. It does map on. Has to, anybody like, the, just thought that maybe Melville preferred not to give content to this? Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. But but I mean, it does. I go. I hear what Victor's saying, because like, I think that that, 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 that Zizek, like I'm sympathetic to that because it, like, you know, it is this idea like you, you guys know for longtime listeners, like you'll know that I that I have my gripes about just like edgy protest politics that just gets caught up in fact like my dissertation work to some extent is just like about like you know just just protest politics that gets caught up in just like being against anything positive just being like like you know trying to negate institutions negate like like political order for something else for this vague notion of like whatever um and i think like maybe that that fits in with uh those other kinds of readings that want to see bartleby as a heroic a heroic figure it fits in with that inclination towards more like, um, yeah, I don't know, edgelordy politics. I think in terms of a textual correlate, the closest thing I can think of is Kafka's Hunger Artist. Yeah. Because the Hunger Artist doesn't, he starves himself to death, spoiler alert, he starves himself to death for no reason except that he never found any food that he liked. So he ends up in a cage in the middle of town and he's doing, he's like a circus act where he just doesn't eat. And then people come by and go, oh, look, there's the Hunger Artist not eating. But we find out that the reason that he didn't eat and starved himself to death was that he didn't like anything. I think Kafka's meta metamorphosis is also like a great parallel where, yeah. again, this character who is just completely misunderstood by society, they don't know what to do with him. 
he's so grotesque in the fact that he no longer works. And eventually he also dies from starvation, right? And that's a much more extreme, absurdist example. But I, I do think that's an interesting parallel. Yeah, it, this is so Kafkaesque. It's interesting that starvation plays a role uh, in all three of these characters also, again, uh, as a kind of self-implosion uh, rather than an external act of violence that's inflicted upon you. Right? Yeah, and not just starvation, but hunger. Because hunger is also the reason that Ishmael left his urban environment to go on the whaling voyage. Hunger here and starvation here is seen not just as the effect of modernity, but the condition of modernity. And hunger for what? Well, we don't know that. Hunger for anything but this. Yeah, but I mean, I can say, because I think we're, I know we said that we had to end up soon. I really enjoyed this, right? I enjoyed the conversation. I learned a lot. And it kind of reminded me of a lot of what great literature is supposed to do in the sense that I've been thinking of very little else aside from this story uh, and Lacerdo over the last, you know, day, two days. Uh, and for a 30 page story, that's quite an accomplishment. right? Yeah, no, I, I also uh, very much enjoyed the story. And I was going to say before, like when we were talking about how Bartleby affirms nothing like it. I mean, people have made the parallel with, you know, the, the, the 19, I think like 1998 movie, you know, Office Space with, with that guy. Oh, who's yeah. like a, and, and, and there is a scene when, when the main character, right, in that, mo- in that movie, he, he obviously has that weird, I mean, they're, they're not the same stories at all, but I think maybe there's some inspiration Office Space to, uh, from, to the Bartleby story. At least there's some parallels, but, but it's just, I'm, I'm reminded of when Peter Gibbons, like the main character just stops going to work and stops listening to his boss and. I guess there is the one parallel too, where Peter Gibbons's boss is also extremely non-confrontational, right? And it's like doing everything he can to like avoid confrontation. That's why he always says, uh, he always uh, like says like, yeah, if you could just go ahead and do this. And he's like saying, yeah, when he's actually saying no, right? It's like this kind of like non-confrontational yang. Um, but, but there's a scene when Peter Gibbons is like talking to like his love interest, Jennifer Aniston. She's like, well, what are you like? You're just going to not go to work. Like, what are you going to do? And he's like, nothing. He's like, I would just want to sit on my ass and do nothing. And it's just like this affirmation of just like nothing. And like, that's really what he wants. His agenda really is to do nothing. Um, and it's just reminding me when we're talking about like that Bartleby's kind of affirming nothing. You forgot the most important part of that movie, uh, which is the Ghetto Boys classic song, Damn It Feels Good to Be a Gangster, uh, which accompanies the montage of his doing nothing. It's a fucking classic song. It deserves more respect uh, than it got. And if you're listening, Ghetto Boys, because you happen to like Plastic Pills, shout out to you. Great song. Deserves more respect than it gets. Send me a message. DM me. Whatever happens to be. Let's get it back on traction. I think the the Razor's Edge, we've kind of talked touched around it a few times, but is, first of all, is the narrator reliable? Because if, if we take his point of view... Bartleby's treated very well. Like no one it, arresting him is a very last resort. People try to understand him, and I, I guess if it falls on your interpretation whether or not you he was treated well, whether or not you trust the narrator that he was treated well. But that kind of diffuses this uh, radical political protest to a degree, unless you think that Bartleby is the kind of person who just protests against the entire system, and this is like. His artistic act is to let himself die at the hands of the system by forcing it to kill him. See, what reasons do we it... have? What reasons do we have for thinking that he's an unreliable narrative? Is there like is there is there evidence of that in the text? Like, well, I'm not, it's, it... I mean, I'm, I'm no literary. Like, that's not my but field. Even at all. the I'm fact that he's writing like after Bartleby has already died, right? Like he knows how this ends. That already can make us a little suspicious of, okay, you know, what is he trying to prove here? Who is he trying to convince? I was yeah. so nice to and him the fact on this he, day. Yeah. I asked him about his family. 
I did all I could. He's so removed from Bartleby's own thought processes. We we have to be a little bit skeptical when he we see him project so much onto this character. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the characters in the in the story, I was almost called the novel, remind me of what like De Tocqueville said about uh, the democratic spirit in America at the time, uh, which is that it's kind of compassionate uh, and it's motivated by sentiment, but it's a very superficial and soft sentiment, right? It's not really interested in probing into the individuality or particularity of people. It's universalized in the kind of banal sense of I care for everybody and I want everyone to like me, right? Uh, and that struck me as this narrator to a T, uh, as kind of a exemplar uh, of this democratic ethos, uh, focused on ease, tranquility, and taking the quickest path, uh, and yearning for people to like him, right? But I never got the sense he really cared about understanding Bartleby as a person. Yeah, we're confined to the narrator's point of view, and it's told out of memory, obviously. So yeah, that's the that's the probably the extent of the unreliability. But interestingly, we're never given a name. The narrator is never named, but we know things about him. Whereas Bartleby is named, he has but a we name, don't know Michael anything Scott. about him. <laughs> yeah. Oh wait, what are we talking about? No, Bartleby is named, but the narrator never is. We don't know who the narrator. We don't know his name really. So that kind of invites some interesting examples, but. You know, Byun Chul Han's reading is just, this is just a tale of exhaustion. That's what it is. He's a product of a disciplinary society. You know, this the soul-crushing work of Scrivenering is in a way sort of representative of these new sorts of like one-dimensional men as, uh, as uh, they'd be called maybe in the <laughs> mid-20th century. And this one-dimensional man, Bartleby, who is who's who is there? You know, he he says in the prison. He says, "I know where I am." You know, when the when the uh, when the narrator kind of recounts him coming himself coming in and trying to be like, "Oh, well, you're going to be you know treated well here, and you have all your own space, and you're fed," and then and then Bartleby kind of just says, "I know where I am." Like he knows he's he knows what's happening, but he just has no desire to stop it, no drive. No ambition. He's completely apathetic, and that's that's it. I don't think I don't think there's any necessity to read into this some kind of messianic, you know, second coming decreation, so that the second creation can take place. And Bartleby's the messenger of this. Like all that just seems like such an unnecessary interpretive apparatus built up around wishful thinking and with a dash of Marxist hopefulness, which is not bad, but I mean, you know, it's not what the story is conveying. The story is just sheer, you know, hopelessness. That's what it is. There's no hope here. And the the narrator, at least he can save himself. He can save his own soul if he can't save Bartleby's, but he's never going to escape that guilt that he <laughs> could have done something, but he didn't. Yeah. Like there's that really funny sequence at the end in the prison where he's giving him like a list of different jobs he can do. And he's like, what about being a bartender? He's like, I think I prefer not to do that, even though I'm not particularly particular, uh, especially particular. And then he's like, well, what about, you know, would you like to work for as another Scrivener? He's like, I prefer not to, even though I'm not particular. And it's very kind of anti-Dickensian in that sense, because you'd almost think at the end of this, he winds up in prison. And if you wanted a happy ending or it was intended to be a heroic story, a character, there'd be a rejuvenation at the end. He would find his calling and go do that. Uh, and that would be the story about modernity. But he just wants at to do absolutely nothing, even though apparently he's not opposed to doing any one job in particular. It's the whole lot of them that he just rejects. Right? 
That's a really funny sequence. I love that. I think he even offers him a trip to Europe. Would you like to travel <laughs> overseas and meet people? I know. No thanks. He's got no interest in anything. I mean, that's that's almost what you feel like today when you have all these choices. It's hard to be interested in something. But, you know, at the end, that juxtaposition, to use uh, Matt's favorite word, is uh, <laughs> uh, Bartleby, uh, humanity at the end there, right? Like, like you know, Bartleby's death is the death of, you know, not, not humanity literally, but, you know, oh, the humanity of it, you know, right? There's no... Humanity is dead. Bartleby is dead. We we live in this disciplinary society and there's no hope. You know, Bartleby is the last column of a ruined temple and he falls over and, you know, it it will die with a whimper, not with a great bang. I think I'll just read the last phrase, the last bit, because I had a I had a bit of trouble. I'm not really sure what it means. I'll just read at length, if you'll permit me. Um, so the narrator hears a rumor that before Bartleby came to work in his office, he worked at the, the dead letter office in Washington, which are ma mail that can't get to the recipient for whatever reason. And I thought it was significant that it's in Washington. I don't know why, but it feels like it is. And he says, when I think over this rumor, hardly can I express the emotions which seize me. Dead letters, does it not sound like dead men? Conceive a man by nature and misfortune prone to a pallid hopelessness. Can any business seem more fitted to heighten it than that of continually handling these dead letters and assorting them for the flames? For the cartload, they are annually burned. Sometimes, from the folded out paper, the paled clerk takes a ring. The finger it was meant for, perhaps, molders in the grave. A banknote sent in swiftest charity. He whom it would relieve, nor eats, nor hungers any more. Pardon for those who died despairing, hope for those who died unhoping, good tidings for those who died stifled by unrelieved calamities. On the errants of life, these letters speed to death. Ah, Bartleby, oh, the humanity. <laughs> well, what I want to say is what this reminds, I actually took this as a sign, and Victor, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, that the narrator is unreliable and still doesn't understand what he's going on. If anything, I took this as an affirmation of his searching to kind of incorporate this into his cliched mode of thinking, uh, and it's still resisting that kind of interpretation. His kind of, oh, the humanity at the end of this reminded me a bit of um, Helen Lovejoy from The Simpsons, you know, when she goes, oh, please think of the children, right? That's the sense I got from this, like, oh, the humanity, think of the profundity of this guy who was like too good for this world or wasn't able to handle this world which kind of to me signified he still didn't quite get it or something. I think there's two interpretations here. Either like Bartleby got his mind infected by death and hopelessness by reading all these letters that were meant for dead people somehow, or that Bartleby is just a, like a, a regular figure, just like all these people who wrote the dead letters that are all dead. Everyone's going to die just like Bartleby did. Yeah, he's, he's a being unto death as... as uh... Han points out his Dasein is a negative being unto death. But it does seem like to your point, Matt, yeah, the narrator is like clutching to this one biographical yeah. detail he's dug up on Bartleby and it's like, oh, that explains it all. Oh, the humanity. Right. And it's like, is it that simple? You know, because we also remember like he was the one describing Bartleby this whole time as like this apparition, this cadaverous entity in my office. So like, this is still how he's now constructed, you know, his interpretation of Bartleby. Okay, the the dead letters stuff, that resolves it. Oh, the humanity, I can go to sleep now. Like, 
Yeah, but that's what's interesting is like, do we buy that? Do we accept that that's like the final sort of like take on this? Because ostensibly, he could have kept Bartleby alive just by letting him sit in his office and do his thing. It's by by as a result of his actions that Bartleby is dead, and then he kind of goes at the end. Well, everybody dies. Is that is that what you're getting at? But but that's what I mean. Yeah, there's almost this kind of pseudo profundity to it, where he's still searching to kind of incorporate them into his cliched way of thinking about things. He resists that, so now he kind of looks at this as the kind of explanatory device that gives him a way out, right? It's like, oh, he was depressed. He read all these letters. Think of all the depressed people out there, kind of like a Simon and Garfunkel song, you know, all the lonely people out there, oh, the humanity, and then I can rest easy now, kind of ruminating on that, right? Whereas to me, there's nothing that suggested that he wasn't particularly melancholic figure in that sense of the word. Right. Again, there's almost this kind of grace or nobility to him that resists that interpretation of Bartleby, for me at least. Right. That he was just really sad, listened to too much Nine Inch Nails all night long and then just decided he's going to starve himself to death. Right. Yeah. I mean, he does he does want to let Bartleby, you know, stay in the office. But, you know, we get the whole explanation that his his professional network starts looking at him funny. That who is this? Who's this unaccountable character hovering in your office that won't do anything we ask? <laughs> you know, he, so he starts to get a bad reputation for it. So, you know, on errands of life, these letters speed unto death, right? I don't know. Is letter a kind of interpretation or metaphor for Bartleby or something that just falls out of the system? You know, when we're, I, I think we're going it. about our business and certain necessities are enforced on us. And so Bartleby is like one of those victims of life, you know, and like, so these letters speed unto death. Bartleby is just the element of death and we feel guilt. We feel racked with guilt and we layer on these explanations and like, you know, we, we're carried along by necessity. And sometimes you can, you know, it's like, it sounds stupid and cliche, but you can't save everybody from the system that you're trying to fight, that's they're they're there, those kinds of people like Bartleby. And they're the reason we do what we do. We critique, we criticize, but you can't save them and you feel guilt. I really think that's it. Just like a dead letter, just like a dead letter, Bartleby fell out of the system. And just like a dead letter, he has no recipient. Recipient as in like a purpose here. So Bartleby didn't really have a purpose here. To whom was he sent? There was one point at which the narrator questioned, was this vagrant sent from God to test my compassion? And then of course his professional network gets in the way and he has to cut Bartleby loose. But I have this suspicion too, and here's my interpretation, I guess. I have a suspicion that Melville saw us in Bartleby. And then when you get to Kafka and Camus, now we are truly Bartleby. We're sent here like a dead letter addressed to someone who isn't here to receive us. Hmm. Very kind of purloined letter. Like, uh, you know, it's even we never read the contents of it, but it's there in plain sight. But we don't know what the fuck it says. But everybody seems to be looking for it, but nobody could find it. We should do that one next time with uh, with Litvik. The Poe. Uh, yeah, an excuse to talk about Lacan, too. <laughs> yeah, it's a good idea. All right, Litvik, any uh, conclusions on how we did as 
as political philosophy and philosophy nerds, how, how, how did our analysis go? No, I think this was a great discussion. Yeah, I really like Matt's take on the elite aristocratic kind of Bartleby. That's really cool. Um, before we I've just go, been I, reading Lacerdo a lot. So like that kind of a yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I actually just wanted to, uh, on a more personal an anecdote, mention a Bartleby moment that I saw in grad school once. Um, this is a mutual <laughs> friend of ours, but I think I was the only one who saw this in person. Um, we had a friend in our master's program who worked as a research assistant for a prof. No names mentioned, but he was a pretty laid back guy. He organized files with this program for this prof. And one morning in class, the prof mentioned this program to the class and he asked our friend in front of everyone else, perhaps you'd like to explain how this program works since you've worked with it so much. And he tosses him the easiest ball to catch. And our friend just like looks up and he's like, you know, never talked in class before. He's like, no, no, that's fine. <laughs> and the prof was so, the prof was so confused because he didn't even know, like, you're allowed to do that. Like, None of us did that. You can just decline to participate in like this academic, like whatever workplace kind of facade. And yeah, so there are real Bartleby's out there and we've seen some of them. Yeah. Oh, the humanity. That's hilarious. Exactly. Eric. Oh, the humanity. Yeah. yeah. Good All stuff. Right, shall we sh All right. sign off or what would you saying? prefer not to? Yeah, let's sign off. Uh, we can prefer not to. I, I would prefer getting, not would you to prefer continue. to say anything else, Victor? Good one, yeah. I'm going to get some ginger nut cakes in me. I'm hungry. I'm I would prefer to like get a beer. Right, we got to say thank you very much, Victor, for coming. Uh, welcome your comments. If you want us to do another book, we'll bring them back. Yeah, we'll do Purloined Letter. We'll do Purloined Letter with Lacan. That'd be fun, and we'll bring Litvik back. Or if you'd like to write the introduction to our show, we're, we're crowdsourcing that now. Send them to me somehow. Float that out there for sure. All right. Take care, everyone. See you guys. This has been, what, PillPod 5055. Cheers. Bye. Wow. How about that?